From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is on the gun debate that has been spurred by the recent shooting in Orlando that killed 49 while injuring another 53. Joining us will be John Raley, editorial page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal, and the Reverend Terrence Hawkins. It's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. In the wake of the shooting in Orlando, editorial page editor for the Winston-Salem Journal, John Raley, penned a powerful opinion piece where he gave a commencement speech to all high school graduates, preparing them for the potential violence that waits. It was so powerful that I wanted to have him on The Public Morality to discuss it. John Raley, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. Glad to be here. We're we're glad to have you. Let's just dive in. um, uh, Since I did the intro to uh, your column yesterday, uh, what prompted what I'm calling your commencement speech column? Oh, well, just, I mean, it's obvious, uh, uh, Orlando, and, um, you know, it, it's just so frustrating, and I really do feel like that, that nobody wants to do anything, and we just go through the same thing over and over, and meanwhile, people are getting killed. Well, you know, you know and, and I know you, 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 you started with Orlando, but, but the subtext of that, uh, is it fair to say, is probably years, if not decades, in the making? Of that? Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and... Um, and it's 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 really that um, you know the NRA is just so all powerful and they they've got Congress and and nothing happens you know today um, there's supposed to be some movement um, in Congress on it but nobody's expecting anything to really happen. You, you know, um, uh, since since you mentioned Congress, um, I, I, w- I was wondering, you know, how much of the blame do you actually place on elected leadership in in this in this uh, on this issue? Well, I mean, I, I, I think I think it's, it is them. I mean, they're the ones that aren't acting. So, um, and then I, I just I just want to quote here. So this is something that you wrote, and I'd like to have you comment on it. Uh, quote: Your high schools should bring in experts to t- to teach teach you how to run in zigzag patterns from gunmen and teach you how to apply first aid to yourself and others. Lawyers should advise you on wills. Morticians should urge you to make funeral plans. Now, I know you're a little hyperbole there, but yeah, what's under that? Well, yeah, and it is hyperbole, but I mean, this is the, I mean, if nothing's going to change and, and we, you know, quite frankly, we keep writing the same things on it. I mean, it's, so it's, it's anything, it's a whatever to get anybody's attention, but I, you know, I don't know, unfortunately, it's, it's even with this column, the comments I've gotten, they're kind of splitting along the same lines. And, and you know, I'm preaching to the choir with certain people. And then uh, somebody had, I, I removed the post, but somebody had a post on um, underneath it yesterday that said, don't, don't limit my clip because I need it so I, can, so I can gun down the liberal media. And he put effing Muslims. I mean, it's, it's crazy what people are saying out there. Mm. So, I mean, actually... Uh that last, and, you those, know, and let me and sorry. Byron, let me make clear those were that I was quoting him. I would never use that language right. myself. Well, of that, course, that, you know that that's beyond you or I to ever speak that way. So you're you're in the clear there, John. So. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make clear. Uh, but you know, I, I guess 
with your last um, statement, I mean, you painted, and, and by the way, as I already said in my introduction, I, I thought it was a very powerful piece. Um, but you painted a rather grim prospect for new grads who may in, who are entering the world, and and you painted a picture where that their primordial impulses of physical survival will trump the economic variety. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something we really do need to look at as a country, and I think I think there's also a divide that um, that you know. These, these things, these shootings, what's far more dangerous on a, is, is the shootings of one or two people that go on every single day, as I said, in this country, that, that get no attention. And, you know, they're usually on the other side of town from where many of us live. So, unfortunately, they get no attention, and they should. I mean, we all own this problem together. Actually, that was uh, a great uh, lead-in to, to my next question to you because I was wondering, and I think you've, you've answered it in part already, are we guilty of, of, of truncating mass shootings like Orlando and Charleston, what happened last year, uh, into a one-size sort of fits-all proposition so that it becomes the whole, uh, at least representative of the whole, and thereby glossing over cities like, say, Chicago, who is having their own troubles with violence? Are we Exactly. I think we need to take it all up. And it becomes all becomes so politicized. And the far right just keeps saying, oh, you know, they'll use in their language, oh, well, that's the community organizer city. Look what's happening there. And look what's happening in all these Democratic cities. And it's all just BS to, to take it like that. I mean, it's and to say, oh, let's not forget in their words that all the African-American violence and black-on-black crime. Okay, well, there's white-on-white crime. There's all kinds of crime. And this, we're, you know, we're all the beloved community, and we should all be worried about each other and how to fix it and not just this GD war of words we keep continuing to do. Well, you know, you know John, I also felt um, that you sort of took issue, and I, I guess those of us in the media are partly responsible for this, that— with the sensationalism that occurs immediately after such events, only, as you pointed out, that will quickly fade to the next event. So that maybe not as high as the elected officials you see it, but that's also part of the problem that gets in that circular conversation. Yes, exactly. And I, and I think uh, I have to say that some in the media, they really don't know anything about guns, and so that weakens the arguments. Even people that, you know, for reasonable gun control, they don't know what they're talking about. And that's where I feel like I can bring something to the conversation because I grew up in gun culture, and I know guns. I can talk calibers and shot sizes and everything. So I feel like I do know what I'm saying when, you know, I own several guns. I own rifles and shotguns, and I, and I love them, and I don't want anybody to take them from me, and nobody's trying to take all our guns, contrary to what you hear from some on the far right. But, uh, you know, we I see some columnists write stuff like, well, you know, We've got all these semi-automatic weapons doing all this damage. Well, a twenty-two rifle is a semi-automatic. The problem is large-caliber magazines. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody needs thirty-shot clips. I mean, that's you know, and why why can't we just have reasonable things like limiting the the the, the clip sizes? And that would literally save more lives from a mass shooter. I mean, it's, we wouldn't stop the mass shootings. But by the fact he would have to, you know, reload more often, maybe it'd give the police a chance to, mm -hmm. to bust in. And then body armor. I mean, what is what does a common citizen need with body armor? That just let that's just let these mass shooters keep shooting longer. I mean, they're they're reasonable things like that we should be discussing, but we're not. Do you think just the fact that um, 
private citizens have access to. Um, I'm not sure the gun, I'm not sure the actual assault weapon, but the bullet is four dollars a pop. I mean, it's uh, yeah. Uh, they have access to that. Is, is that really just solely driven in your mind by profits? Yeah, of course it's profits, and, and I'll come back to that. But you know, and we saw the we saw the upbeat in um, gun sales last week after Orlando. Um, but and I think that's another. I think assault weapon just because a gun looks menacing. Um, yeah, yeah, these are dangerous weapons. But I'm not so wor- worried as much as assault weapons, as much as just limiting the clips on them. But it is mm-hmm. big money, and um, it's just driving all, and it's it's big money lobbying Congress, and it has been for years and years. Yeah, I mean it's like you you. It's like what will come next. I mean, after to me, Columbine. I mean, not Columbine, but um, uh, Newtown was the was the worst. I mean, when you have twenty little twenty little first graders and second graders gunned down like that, and nobody, and that doesn't move a country to to action. You know, you you wonder what will. Well, you know what? Um, uh, I want to follow up. Is it possible? Uh, and I want you to put your hopeful Quaker hat on right now. <laughs> is, is it possible uh, in the public conversation to have a judicious conversation about the Second Amendment? Can we do that? Do we have that ability? I, I, I really wish we would, Byron, to talk about things like, look, you know, it's, yes, I, you and I both share, I mean, to us, that's our secular Bible, the, 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 first, the, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, and you believe in it as strongly as I do, and so, does, so do people that differ from us. Right. But all amendments come with, um, come with you know, regular, you know, they, 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 they have to face wear and tear and daily use. And the First Amendment, which, of course, is mine as a newspaper man's favorite, well, I can't just write anything I want about anybody without facing libel or slander. I can't, and just as a citizen, to use the old cliche, can't you can't you fire in a crowded fi- in a cr- can't you fire in a crowded movie house? Well, the Second Amendment should be subject to to some regulations too. That's 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 just part of life. Yeah. Um, in, in other words, it, it's just that we, we um, remember the old light beer commercials, less filling, uh-huh. tastes great. And uh-huh. that's, that's sort of what we've done, it seems like, w- with the Second Amendment. That, that no, there's no movement on the discussion. Yeah. And again, I want to make clear that I'm, I'm, I'm moderate to, to maybe a little right of moderate on this. As I say, I'm a gun owner and I would never want anybody to take my guns. And I believe in them for, for self-defense and for sport. Um, but but I but I think there is room for, and I believe that it it is a basic part of America. And um, I, you know, like I say, I grew up in gun culture and backcountry tidewater. And I love my guns, but I do think we can have reasonable control of them. Why Why do you think? And I'm asking you to speculate. Why, why John? Why do you think that um, that we have the current phenomenon that um, we what we periodically have a, a sensational act of violence, a mass shooting? Um, we get worked up for several news cycles, and then we go back to business as usual. And it sort of perpetuates a social paralysis in terms of when it actually comes to gun violence. I, any thoughts on why we continue to stay in that little circular loop? Yeah, just we go through the same rights, you mean? Yeah, just, uh, we, you know, we, we get all up in arms. We, you know, some of us mourn, some of us raise the question about we need stricter gun laws and we, no, no, I don't want you to take away my freedom. And then we get worked up for a while and then it goes away and then it doesn't come back again until the next. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think I think the left shares responsibility for it because, you know, and all of it, and it's the, this other, the other sick side of a, of American politics is everybody raises money off of this, the left and the right, and you know, so that's what they do, and they play the issues, and you know, and it's and they're all part of. Of course, the larger picture is that that Congress is broken anyway, and nobody is able to get get along and get anything done. So it, it happens against that backdrop, and um, so it just continues to, to be deadlocked, and, and, and it's, it becomes hypocritical for people to say, oh, you know, we're, we're so saddened by this, and, but, and, you know, we pray for these people but, and, and their families, but it's so hypo- whoever says it, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, well, what does that mean? It's hypocritical to say that, that you're so sorry for them and pray for them, but what you know what does that mean for the for, to stop the next shooting well well nothing talking with John Rayleigh the editorial page editor for the Winston Salem Journal who also carries my column and John is also a friend um i, I want to come back to you know oftentimes and um and this, this is actually one of the things about your column that really um wanted me to have you on today you know oftentimes on the impingement on the opinion page, we, we pontificate about a particular mm-hmm. issue, and then, but then every now and then, you know, there are times when the columnist is more concerned about being heard, and that his or her opinion is somewhat secondary, and and because the idea that they wish to promote is is, is that high, and I'm wondering, was this that type of piece for you? Yeah, I mean, I felt like that. It's, it's like you want to shake people, and yeah, it's gotten some. It's gotten some people to, you know, you know. There's some people that really didn't like it, but there's some other people that got it. As we're talking, I was just getting a couple of emails from people that are that are saying that, you know, they're afraid nobody's ever going to listen, but you've got to do whatever you can to to get people to listen. And saying like this one guy saying, no self-respecting hunter or target um, person should want these huge you know, magazines and all, and should, and should, I mean, they're, 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 they say they're people in the NRA that want reasonable gun control, but the, but the powers that be in the NRA don't. Well, you know, you know, John, you just, un, you just tapped on something I think that's often lost in the debate, and I, and I do think that um, uh, members, rank-and-file members of the NRA get painted with an uh, unfortunate brush because even though I am not a member of the NRA, um, my position uh uh, on guns, I think it's very similar to yours, mm-hmm. and that's where rank and file members of the NRA are. Exactly. But the, but the leadership's in a different place. Exactly, exactly. And the you know this comes right down from the president. The president he doesn't know what to say, and he you know, he he said as much um, in the in shootings before that you know this is becoming this is the sad pattern that we have in our country where we go through this and nothing changes. Um, you know, I'm all for if, if Donald Trump can get to him, good, good. You know, he says he's going to talk to the NRA about um, the terrorist watch list. Well, you know, if they'll listen to somebody, fine. I mean, any what whatever has to happen to move it. So, John, but, um, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, the the needle is you know does does not get moved. I mean, you know, you have the the Brady Bill and everything else, and when you when you had that happen and what what came from that and. You know, look, if we take action against – look look at all the gains that have been made against drunk driving. You know, that used to be uh, 
you know, it was just common to just ride around and drink beer. And mm-hmm. now you would just know not to do that. And there, there are huge penalties, and it has cut down on the problem and saved lives. Well, why can't the same problem, why, why can't that approach be taken with guns? There's no reason it can't be. That, you know, the, the, they keep saying gun control is not the answer. Well, how do you know? We haven't tried it. I mean, this is a case where children, young adults, old adults, everybody's getting murdered in mass shootings or small shootings. And we should just throw things against the wall and see if they stick. And I don't mean it quite like that, and I'm sure my critics will come back and say, well, that's the problem. But, I mean, we should certainly try out reasonable solutions. What do we have to lose? We're already losing lives. That would be, that it would be far, less, far less to lose to try reasonable solutions than what we're losing in lives. And the cynic might come back at you and say, you know what? We're, uh, we've just become resolute. Uh, the gun violence in its myriad forms is just a part of the American narrative, and there's no solution. What, what would you say to that person? Yeah, I would say, well, just take the long view and, and think, think what 21st century America is going to look like to 22nd century Americans. They're, they're just going to say this was the biggest insanity. I mean, you know, I, I, and I do think spiritually it's something, you know, it, it's something wrong with the country, but it, this goes a big part of it, but I, 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 that's simplistic. I think a big problem is, the, you know, our, we haven't wanted to deal with mental health issues forever and ever. Our mental health system's broken. So you have that, and you can't, there, there's so many people that aren't getting the help they need, and a lot of them can get access to guns, and that's a problem. I mean, if that's that's another part of the puzzle that could be attacked. Why do people that clearly have mental problems are able to buy guns? But, but is and I think you just touched on something really important here. Isn't isn't part of the uh, challenge here is that there's no really one solution, but rather it's a complex problem that requires a series of responses to to move the needle in a different direction. Exactly. Exactly. I would say I would say reasonable gun control, and then I would say you've got to really look at that mental health part. And then, you know, I do think you look at the culture, and you look at um, Hollywood, and you look at children playing the video games where they, you know, are taught from. Especially as as tech as tech advances, and as the first, you know, you see three year olds that can go around with their with their phones and and know how to move everything and work everything well you know and they're getting on very on to these little gun games where you know it's nothing that's just a little shadow you shoot and it goes down and sooner or later you think okay well human life has no value i think that's a part of it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are you are you hopeful that something can be done to change the current trajectory that 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 were uh that prompted this wonderful thought-provoking column of yours yesterday yeah, I, yeah, Byron. Of course, I'm always hopeful, and you know, it, America's a phenomenal place. And you know, look, they we had you had a, the wonderful abolition movement that sprang up and changed the face of America. And you had great leaders that happened to come at the right time, like Abraham Lincoln, and so and then you, like Martin King. So things were changed in this country through brave and courageous people and movements. And you know, we talk about Lincoln and we talk about Martin King. But, of course, as we both know, behind, behind each leader like that are a million good people that stand up and say enough is enough and work bravely. And often at times it takes even more courage to work in their communities and stand up and say enough is enough. And you have to keep hoping for that. 
Well, John, really, as you, as you well know, if if no one responded to your column, then you then you failed. So I guess um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. And you know, I, I will say, you know, I, I, as in so many things, I'm, I'm, I, I I would love to see the mothers stand up and really move this thing. And I, and some hundreds and thousands of them already are trying to. And I, I, I you know, women are so much stronger than men, and I really would like to see them lead this thing. Well, as long as they don't, as long as they don't lead another prohibition movement, I, I, I... <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was one. That was one mass movement that might not, but might, might not have been the best. Okay, okay, so we're in total agreement. But uh, my friend, thank you for a wonderful column, and um, I thank you again for being on the public morality today. Yeah, Byron, and like I say, I, I'm, I'm a lover of my own guns, and so I don't want any of the critics to get that wrong. And I wouldn't ever want anybody to take my guns, but I do think we can do reasonable gun control, and I think we can get it done. I think we can. Thank you, John Raley. Thank you, Byron. That was John Raley, editorial page editor of the Winston-Salem Journal. Coming up, my discussion with Reverend Terrence Hawkins about the moral aspects of mass shootings. turn to the moral aspect of not only the Orlando shooting, but also our approach to mass shootings in general. I've invited the Reverend Terrence Hawkins to return to the public morality to share his thoughts. Reverend Terrence Hawkins, welcome to the public morality. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's begin. Um, Don't the moral questions around the gun debate, you know, uh, shouldn't we be asking us whether, you know, that the nation can survive you know, as it moves toward an interpretation of the Second Amendment that is almost ubiquitous in nature when it comes to purchasing guns? Yeah, I mean, we we have to, as a nation, um, push beyond these um, elementary arguments that just um, uphold our rights to own a gun uh, without really thinking deeply about um, how we as a nation can um, prevent violence, how we can um, prevent terrorism, um, and how we can make our, our nation a peaceable place to live. It's amazing that, you know, in our nation it's easier to get a gun um, than it is to vote in most states. And so there has to be a, a more in-depth conversation that's, that's rooted in love. Um, it's rooted in love for our fellow citizens, um, rooted in love for the uh, generations that will follow us. Um, in the words of Martin Luther King, if, if we don't somehow figure out nonviolence, um, we are um, headed towards non-existence. And, and since you since you mentioned King, um, you know, I, I think about the war in Vietnam and, and how uh, uh, that protest really changed the narrative on that war. And but it was when um, King made his opposition known to the war in Vietnam that that the war took on the protest at least took on a, a moral component. Right. Um, you could say something very similar. Uh, about Abraham Lincoln when he gave the Emancipation Proclamation. And in some regard, isn't that missing from this equation? I'm I'm not not suggesting that there aren't moral voices out there, but somehow it hasn't caught on into the discourse. Yeah, there is a um, a huge hole um, in our nation um, in terms of there being um, a consistent voice that's raising um, the morality of this issue. And I think um, in many ways um, the blame could be 
placed at the door of faith communities. Um, specifically, I'm um, a Christian minister, so from my faith tradition, um, you know, Martin Luther King emerged out of that. And in many ways, we have um, many folks who call themselves people of faith, who call, call themselves followers of Jesus, who are more familiar with the Sermon on Mount Rushmore, um, which speaks of genocide and violence um, and imperialism, than they are with the Sermon on the Mount, which speaks of um, peacemaking and, and um, living in love with all of our fellow human beings. So, yeah, there is a huge gap, and I know there are voices out there um, but for whatever reason, we're not able to see the momentum that we got in previous eras when um, uh, there were prophetic voices being raised that really, really made um, the power stop and listen and made the society at large stop and listen and reflect and wrestle with what, what type of people do we want to be? What type of nation do we want to be? You, you know, just following up, you know, each, each time mass shootings occur, we have the same debate. Right. Either, either it's too many guns on one side versus not enough guns on the other. Mm-hmm. But, but, but after a couple news cycles, you know, that conversation fades away and it only returns with another shooting. How are we hamstrung by that phenomenon, or why? Well, I think in many ways our society is a sound clip, sound bite culture. We um, are prone to microwave approaches to everything, so if the struggle uh, doesn't uh, uh, give us results in a quick amount of time, a lot of folks kind of abandon ship, they move on to the next hot-button issue, and I think that really handicaps us, um, and unfortunately, um, the conversation, like you said, it reemerges when there's blood on the ground crying, um, but somehow we, we've got to um, figure out how to have a... a a consistent, sustained uh, movement and dialogue in our nation um, about these issues. Um, and it's got to go beyond these, these dichotomies of, okay, well, um, guns don't kill people, people kill people, so it's a heart issue. Um, and other folks will say, we'll ignore the heart issue and only say, well, we need to uh, do legislation that stops it. And I would say we need to engage on all levels. We need to be teaching our young people um, creative alternative violence, um, and we also need to be engaging on the policy level. Um, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. I'm quoting him again. Um, he said that morality can't be legislated, um, but at the same point, um, legislation can restrain the heartless. And so we've got to be willing to work on both levels and not settle uh, for one pan argument, um, but to really be nuanced and be holistic in our approach. Talking with Reverend Terrence Hawkins um, about the morality of the gun debate, uh, you just threw out one of the talking points for uh, for the for the pro gun side, which is uh, guns don't peel, kill people; people kill people. Well, if you if you follow that line of thinking, why don't we just legalize st- stinger missiles for private people? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's it's an extremely problematic um, line of argument that when you really just take a few moments to use a little common sense, and I don't mean that in a way to um, bash folks who have that opinion, um, but it's interesting to me that a lot of times um, the people who um, are prone to give that argument live in spaces that are uncontestedly expected to be safe. Um, but those of us who find ourselves in communities uh, who have um, uh, cultural, ethnic, 
um, sexual identities that put us in harm's way, um, our familiarity with violence um, makes us aware of the fact that, yes, there is a heart issue, and we want to push against homophobia. We want to push against Islamophobia, racism, and all those things. But on the same level, we need to push against the policies that make it easier for someone with a heart issue um, to do something unthinkable to another human being. But we also know that the current status quo, as it is currently comprised, um, is not working as it relates to guns. So why is it remains intact so even so the moral arguments that you're making right now are, are almost fighting to even be heard? Yes. So I, I think one thing that has to be um, reckoned with is the fact that we have a political class that's uh, given to normalize corruption and legalize violence. And so we have folks um, on both sides of the aisle um, who are working for uh, the benefit of the elite. So, um, you know, uh, gun lobbyists, in many ways, their opinions, their wants, their bottom line, the bottom dollar that they're after takes precedent over um, human life. And I think that's one of the things that always gets in the way. I know uh, as recently as yesterday, um, uh, a bill proposed to um, try to counteract, counteract gun violence, and it did not pass. It failed to pass. And so um, there's a, a, a movement as needed. Not <laughs> uh, to, to borrow Bernie Sanders' term, we need a political revolution. We need um, something that really cuts through. Um, this, this normalized corruption and legalized bribery and really says, are we going to be a people that are oriented around the sacredness of human life? Or are we going to be a people that are oriented around um, our love of guns or our love of money? And, and I think that when the average American is asked this question, um, they're going to lean towards the sacredness of human life. But unfortunately, uh, the media and our political class um, brings the conversation and continues us in the status quo. And, and Terrence, um, I'm just going going back to your pr- previous response. That last response flies in the face, though, is it, or at least is in tension with uh, the whole notion of being a, a microwave culture. If you can't you, you can't have a movement, right. it, it, if you're going to be a microwave culture, exactly. So we we need a whole shift in our values, a whole shift in our. Um, our mindset and the way we think about um, what it means to be human. Um, And somehow we're going to have to unglue ourselves um, from this microwave mentality on so many levels, which is one uh, where it's definitely needed. And unfortunately, um, the voices, the spaces that should be um, empowering and and kind of putting that that seed in in the culture um, uh, in many ways, are putting the exact opposite seed. Um, so we have um, folks that claim faith traditions that I think are uh, meant to be radically committed to love, um, but in some way, shape, or fashion, it seems like we've said, blessed are the warmongers, blessed are the gun worshippers, instead of those that um, love their neighbor, um, that, that do good to those that easily, um, that, dis- that despitefully use us. Um, somehow we've, we've flip this thing over on its head, and somehow there's got to be um, a push that flips it right side up, and it has to be sustained. Well, on the note of, of sustained, do, do we have, in your view, 
even the tolerance to have a sustained movement. I hate to I hate to be the the, the resident cynic here because I mean Rosa Parks start you know sat on the bus in 1955. And it was, I mean, roughly it was like um, nine years later before there was a substantive civil rights bill, you know, with teeth. I mean, that's nine years. That's yeah. <laughs> that's Greensboro, Albany, Birmingham, you know, yeah. Mississippi. So do we have that type of stamina? You know, um, I do believe that there is um, a remnant of folks who, um, as best as they can tell, they examine their own heart and their own intentions have basically buckled in for the long ride. Um, and I think things like the Black Lives Matter movement, even going back to the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, all these different things have kind of created a climate for I, what I think a movement could be birthed out of and um, have a sustained um, presence. And so, yes, a part of me looks at um, the microwave culture, um, the fact that we uh, are fed what I call the, the cotton candy of historical amnesia, uh, so often I look at that and, I, and there is a cynicism that speaks in, but I always want to push against that and cling to hope. Um, and, and I hope that it's not based in what I necessarily see. I hope it's not based in even my own ability, but I hope it's based in the fact that um, humanity carries in it some worth and value and dignity. And that if that can be tapped into and if um, um, folks can rally together and, and kind of lay down the petty things that separate us and push towards time good that ha- that will have so many um, huge implications for our lives and lives to come after us that, that it is possible. And, you know, obviously history will um, tell us uh, down the line whether or not I'm right about that. But um, I'm, I'm hoping against hope, and I do see evidence um, that there are um, folks around the country um, that, that have uh, committed themselves um, to be long-distance runners for peace and justice. Well, I, I, since you mentioned Black Lives Matter, let, let me digress ever so slightly and, and to ask you to speculate, rather, um, if, let's say, on the heels of the Orlando shooting, there, uh, since the, the, the key organizers of, of Black Lives Matter were, were lesbian sisters, am I correct about that? Uh, two of the... Um Co-founders are okay. lesbian. Yes. All right, two of the two of the co-founders were uh, uh, a lesbian. So, given what happened in Orlando, if Black Lives Matter um, added a plank um, to their set of guidelines, that every in order to be a member, you have to own a gun and be a member of the National Rifle Association. <laughs> do you think um, we would find some way to uh, have some le- some common sense gun legislation? I think we would. I think history. Um, shows that we would um, a similar movement, um, the Black Power Movement, Black Panthers, um, when they decided, hey, we're, we're going to arm ourselves um, very quickly. Uh, we found a way to pass legislation uh, for gun control laws in response to um, black folks carrying guns. So, um, yeah, I've, I've heard some friends say, well, you know how we can get gun control. Just tell black folks across the nation uh, to arm themselves um, and we'll we'll get some gun control very quickly. You know, um, I, I just I, I looked at this um, the other day these statistics, and I looked at the top you know five mass murders since uh, in terms of total fatalities um, since 1984. Mm-hmm. The total comes to 218 lives. 
if you, right. t- you take the top five with uh, in, in, in modern American history, uh, um, because there have been some larger uh, uh, catastrophic events prior to that, but from 84, 218 lives total. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Chicago, over the Father's Day weekend, passed 300. Right. Why is there not a similar outcry? Well, I think there are multiple reasons. One is that we have been... Um, we've been taught to assume that certain areas um, uh, that violence is okay there or that it's to be an assumed reality. And so um, when I think about the ghetto, the barrio, the hood, whatever you want to call it, um, I think of these places as socially engineered areas of deprivation and hopelessness. And so um, those type of conditions um, lend themselves well to there being higher rates of crime. As a matter of fact, a lot of research shows that it doesn't matter whether it's black or white folks. If you put them in, the, in similar conditions of poverty uh, and lack of resources, um, the crime rate and violence rates are almost um, identical. Um, so we've come to expect that and you have uh, a narrative that's 400 years long um, that says that black folks are prone to criminality, that we are inherently um given to violence and so some folks would just look at that and say well you know that's some cultural pathology without turning the mirror back at themselves and turning the mirror on the nation and saying well what what type of pathology of violence is baked into the american empire itself and so i think we've been trained to look away from that um and it's really sad because there are people in those communities like chicago um um, acquaintances like uh, Amy Williams and Jonathan Brooks, who are doing amazing work on the ground in places like Inglewood and other areas of Chicago um, that have been suffering from violence for years. Um, but the sad thing is that their voices aren't heard nationally. Um, one um, anecdotal, um, one one example of this is when um, uh, some clergy were gathered after the um, mass shooting in Newtown, uh, I think. And um, they came out to meet with uh, the vice president, and one of the clergy members raised the question um, um, to see if urban violence would be included in in the platform um, that was meant to kind of counteract the things that were happening at that point. And he said that the response that he got was almost like, are you crazy? Like, are you, why is this even brought into this discussion? And I think that that shows us that, um, you know, black lives don't matter. <laughs> Brown lives don't matter. Um, poor lives don't really matter. We, we're, we're completely comfortable with allowing those conditions to go unchecked and unconfronted um, and just throw everybody in jail um, in those situations. But on some level, at least we'll have a discussion. At least we'll allow it to dominate our headlines um, when it takes place in a place, in an area of our communities. Um, that we're expecting to be safe. You know, the the, the irony of, of what you just said was that the um, over the past weekend, uh, Chicago had 13 homicides. Right. That would have placed them in that top five of of mass murder mass murders um, mm-hmm. since since 1984. And I and I'm not sure if it really made any news. Maybe outside outside of Chicago, at least. Right. It it rarely does. Um, and, it's, and I, I think sometimes people assume that there are no organizers that are really uh, raising their voices and doing work so that um, 
we do raise the consciousness um, in our nation about these issues, um, but they're met with um, deaf ears. Their voices are met with deaf ears, and their cries are unheard. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the solutions that are thrown, it's like we, we throw the, the crumbs um, in our, our solutions to uh, these types of communities. Um, I thought there was some legislation um, that said it was going to include um, uh, some things that were meant to counteract urban violence, but what it included was more money for student resource officers at schools and a couple other things that when you actually get down into it, uh, those things actually do very little um, to stop um, the violence within those communities. But campaigns like Ceasefire, um, get, um, they struggle to get the funding um, to, 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 to um, pay salaries for outreach workers, to um, get traction within police departments, to work alongside of you know, some unusual alliances because we actually need to hear the voices of those who are most um, involved and most uh, vulnerable um, to this type of violence, but again, um, I don't think those lives matter um, to um, the broader American culture. Uh, we, we've been trained to see those lives as, as less valuable. Um, uh, talking with Reverend Terrence Hawkins about the morality of the gun debate, and, and one of the things that occurred to me just in the midst of our conversation here was that when we talk about the gun debate, not only do we not talk about, you know, the urban the violence that plays urban America as well uh, are these sensational mass shootings. But I also um, think, and I want to get your reaction to it, that there is a gun debate in urban America. There's also a gun debate in suburban America and in rural America. And um, we can't hold those three together. Hmm. Yeah. Um, from hearing your question, right, you're saying that we just don't well, let me. It. Well, let me just follow up. Let me just follow up. If if you uh, and I'm not advocating this right now, but if you just banned every assault weapon uh, in the country, mm-hmm. you banned every semi-assault weapon in the country. Okay, you mm-hmm. have done nothing for the gun debate in urban America. Right. 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 Chica- I, I agree. Chicago uh, would still have three three hundred murders. I mean, exactly. Exactly. Which is why. Yeah, the urban violence um, is not on the table, um, and the solutions that are being offered aren't being heard. And so when we have um, discussions on gun control, that the dynamics that plague those communities aren't a part of the solutions. Um, they're not a part of what's guiding the solutions that we're coming up with. Uh, so you're, you're absolutely right. That there's a couple different conversations at different angles those things need to be hit from and nine times out of ten our gun discussions are centered around uh, mass shootings and rightfully so we should zoom in on those but how can we keep track of and mourn um, uh, the deaths of folks at a movie theater or a school campus but also mourn and be mobilized to action for um, the 12 year old that shot um, in a drive-by because of crossfire in Cleveland, Ohio how can we how can we keep that a part of the discussion and how can we work for solutions that are specific to that community? Um, and, and there are success stories. There are success stories of ceasefire and other programs uh, being implemented um, and really um, embraced um, by the community as well as the uh, law enforcement, and they work together, and uh, there was great reduction in violence um, and shooting deaths. 
And I, I think, you know, we just need um, folks um, to get on board and really push to have a conversation that's inclusive of the violence that takes place um, in impoverished communities. You know, I, I recall, I guess back in 2015, um, when um, doing the Charlie Hebdo um, shooting in Paris, mm-hmm. uh, the world en masse, you know, said, Je suis Charlie, like I, which means I am right. Charlie. Now, maybe you've seen it, but I have not seen in the aftermath of the recent Orlando shooting anything remotely close to Je suis LGBT or, for that matter, Je suis Chicago. Right. With right. that said, are we being guilty of, 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 of somewhat selective even in our outcry for, the, for, these, mm-hmm. for these things? Yeah, I think we are. Um, I was in Memphis, Tennessee um, at a conference when um, the tragic shooting um, terrorist attack took place in Paris, and I happened to be in the company of a, a Lebanese-American brother um, who, uh, as he heard the news, he immediately said to me, well, um, close to my hometown, um, yesterday, uh, there was a terrorist attack that took about 40 to 50 lives. But that didn't even create a blip on our uh, media radar. And I think we are selective in what we're willing to be outraged about. Um, and I keep going back to this, but I, I believe that globally, um, our bowels of, of compassion have been infected um, by racism, by homophobia, by Islamophobia, by all these different isms. And they... they they, they they block our ability, they impede our ability um, to show compassion and outrage um, when certain types of folks um, are the victims of violence. And so um, it's no secret um, that, you know, our nation um, struggles uh, to honor and affirm the dignity, value, and worth of LGBTQ people. And so I think we struggle to um, express outrage and compassion in these moments. We struggle uh, with acts of solidarity uh, with some of our faith traditions, um, you know, give us different views on um, uh, people with different sexual identities. Um, those things get in the way of us acting in solidarity. And, and what I like to say is if um, your um, ideology or theology impedes you from showing concrete um, solidarity in these moments, um, it needs to be a real. It needs to be reassessed. Uh, perhaps it's bankrupt. And I think, in many ways, when when we're, when they're put under the microscope, um, a lot of our worldviews are bankrupt. Because if we can't see that all people everywhere um, are made in God's image and um, deserve um, our outrage and outcries when they catch hell, um, we we are in trouble as um, a species. We're in trouble as a nation. Uh, we're in, we're in trouble. And finally, um, put your theologian hat on, even though you've had it on this entire conversation, <laughs> but, but strap it down. Um, are we just simply struggling from the inability to be self-reflective, just relying on our, on our certainty? I, I believe so. Um, there is, um, you know, we, there's a, a human proclivity towards self-righteousness, um, and I think inside the American empire, um, American exceptionalism is our corporate expression of self-righteousness. And so when we um, are confronted with things that um, push against the narrative of our exceptionalism, when we're confronted with the darkness um, that is within our society, um, there's a tendency um, to kind of suppress that. 
um, or to just, you know, give it a token, a token um, year. Uh, but we never really go deep in that, and and it's something that we we have to um, begin to cultivate in our in the next generation. We have to begin cultivating our communities and our our churches, our mosques, our synagogues. Um, if we're not willing to examine ourselves, um, um, I think it was. Uh, uh, Plato has said the uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, I think Malcolm X would follow that up with the examined life is painful, and we've got to be willing to um, undergo self-examination. We got to be willing um, to ask ourselves hard questions. We've got to be willing um, to um, allow our scars, our warts, um, our blemishes um, to be put under the microscope, uh, not to taunt us, not to um, shame us. Um, but to show us who we are, um, and in finding out who we are, perhaps we could um, cling uh, towards um, a new future and push towards being um, something that's more like uh, what we, um, in the Christian tradition, call the New Jerusalem, um, where there's no more weeping, no more exclusion, uh, there's no more marginalization, no more violence, no more oppression, um, but peace and justice and love rule the day. Um, and, and brotherhood and sisterhood and mutuality. And I think we can, you don't have to wait for the hereafter to that, for that. I think that's something that we are meant to be pressing into now. Reverend Terrence Hawkins, I want to thank you for once again being on the Public Morality Today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Reverend Terrence Hawkins. Coming up, my closing remarks. In lieu of my traditional closing remarks, I decided I would step aside this evening and allow Jack Aiello, the eighth grader from Thomas Middle School outside of Chicago, who gave a memorable graduation address that recently went viral, where he impersonates several of the 2016 presidential candidates, including President Obama, as if they were graduating from Thomas. He begins with Donald Trump. Hello. And congratulations, you are now getting to hear a speech from the magnificent Donald Trump. And let me just tell you that Thomas has been such a great school. I mean, quite frankly, it's been fantastic. I mean, we've had so many great experiences here. You know, one of those would have to be starting foreign language. We're learning languages from Spain, from France, from Germany, and China! And you know, people say I don't like China. I love China. I mean, I love China. I mean, I have so many terrific friends in China. But I took Spanish, and let me just tell you, by the way, that it was fantastic. Boy, fantastic. And you know, foreign languages is one great thing. You know, another one would have to be the showdown against the teachers themselves. We won in sixth grade, we won in seventh grade, but then we lost in eighth grade. But that's okay, teachers, we'll forgive you. <laughs> and let me just tell you, by the way, that if we have an entire team of Mr. Craig's, who, by the way, is fantastic, I mean, he's terrific. <laughs> if, if we have an entire team of Mr. Craig's, we will win, and we will win, and believe me, we will win. <laughs> 
me sick of winning. <laughs> and again, this is such a terrific crowd, and I know you're all loving this speech, but I have to hand it off to Senator Ted Cruz. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. <laughs> Let me start by saying this. God bless the great school of Thomas. <laughs> you know, some of the greatest memories here at GMS were in the creative arts classes. Like in family and consumer science, baking the wacky chocolate cake, or sewing our very own miniature pillows. Mine had a Lamborghini on it. And I can assure you that that Lamborghini is still a throw pillow on my bed each and every day. Or in music class, experimenting with the different tones of the boom whackers. Or jamming on the ukuleles. Creative arts unquestionably part of the great TMS memories. And I know that President Obama shares some of the same great feelings that I have about Thomas. Isn't that right, Mr. President? Uh, you know, um, that's right, Ted. And I'd just like to start off by thanking our excellent principal, Mr. Kate. You know, he's done a terrific job preparing us for high school. Back to the memories, though. You know, uh, some of the greatest memories that we had were, were in gym class or PE. You know, uh, <laughs> you know uh, uh, we did all the regular sports you'd expect, like basketball and soccer, but we also did some unique ones, too. Uh, on rainy days, we would go into the small gym and do yoga. And, and I am proud to say that I have completely mastered the downward dog. So, we, we also did a unit entirely on dance. We did dances like, like the Bavarian shoe plan. And we also did some Hawaiian dancing too. In fact, I even remember how one of the Hawaiian songs goes, it goes a little bit like this. <clears throat> I want to go back to my little grass hut. <laughs> Where all the old Hawaiians are singing Komo Maino Kawa Ikahale Walakaha. <laughs> Aloha to that. <laughs> TMS has been filled with some truly terrific memories, and now I'd like to pass it on to Secretary Hillary Clinton. Thank you, President Obama. I'd like to start out by thanking the great hardworking teachers of Thomas Middle School. They've been our champions. 
They've given us the skills we need to get through 6th grade and through 7th grade and through 8th grade. And now we're going to take those skills and apply them to high school. And thanks to our teachers, we have all the tools we need to succeed in this next chapter of our lives. And they all deserve a big round of applause. And I know that Senator Sanders agrees with me. <laughs> yes, I do agree with the Secretary. <laughs> and hello. Thank you for allowing me to speak to you today. Let me start with the lunches. They are delicious. Things like pizza and tacos and chips, you name it. And some of the best cinnamon rolls I've ever tasted. I do have one improvement for them though. We need to make them free. What we need is a cinnamon roll revolution. You know, another great experience would have to be going to Taft. Who can forget activities like night hike and cross-country orienteering? Or indulging ourselves into some truly delicious meals like pot roast with noodles. And finally, to conclude this entire graduation speech, I would just like to say that the bottom line is this. As far as schools go, TMS is in the top one half of one half of one percent of schools in the entire country. Thank you all so much. Congratulations. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcasts, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.